Isaiah, the mini Bible, this is part eight. This is our last lesson. The title is The Gospel, a great news for all. And we begin our reading in chapter 61, verse one. It says, and the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to opening of the prison doors to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is a messianic prophecy, and it's a prophetic declaration of the Messiah by the anointing of the Holy Spirit that would come upon him. Listen, it's no secret to any one of you that Jesus is the fulfillment of this particular prophecy. For Jesus declared it at the very beginning of his public ministry. You see, following his baptism there in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, he went out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and was tempted there by the devil. From there, he made his way back up to Nazareth, his hometown. And as it was his custom, he would go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day as Luke tells us. And when the scrolls were opened to Jesus for the reading, as Jesus was, was unraveling the scroll of Isaiah, he found the place where the passage was. Then Jesus read this passage. After reading it, he sat down and everyone there in Nazareth, in that synagogue, were looking at him. And then he said that on this day, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. So note that this passage declared that the Holy Spirit would be upon the Messiah there in verse 1. Messiah would receive this anointing for a particular purpose. And, of course, that purpose was for the preaching, as it says here, good tidings. Good tidings means good news. It means the gospel. And when we talk about the gospel or the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament, it literally means good news. But even stronger than that, it's great news. So in Jesus' public ministry, as the anointed the Holy Spirit is upon him, he's teaching the gospel, the good news, the great news, good tidings. A person that you share this with might not ever know it's the greatest message and news that they will ever receive in their life. It's more important for us to know that as we share. We are not to hoard this news that we have heard. Keep it to ourselves. What good would that be? But as long as we know this is the greatest news a person will ever hear, we keep telling people who are not with Jesus Christ this good news. And even at this time as the world is being gripped with bad news, we combat that with the greatest news a person could ever hear. Understand that the word poor in the first verse doesn't mean the same as our definition of poor. We think of poverty. We think of homelessness. We think being short of money. Kind of like the poor old rabbi who was sleeping and he heard a noise that woke him up. As he sat up in bed, he asked, who is it? And a voice responded, it's a burglar. What are you looking for, the rabbi asked. The burglar said, money. And the poor old rabbi said, wait, I will get up and help you. Because <laughs> we all know how that feeling is. If there's money to be found, let, keep me in on that. But listen, the poor in this passage, yes, includes materially poor. But it also speaks of those who are living in spiritual poverty. Jesus says, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his very soul? Jesus saying that your soul is worth more than all the world has to offer. Many of us didn't value our soul at all until Christ came into our lives. Then we realized we made the most important decision a person could ever make in their life. Before that, we were selling out for nothing. Before that, we valued, we valued stuff over 
our soul. Also in verse 1, it notice this gospel, it says, it heals the brokenhearted. Just like, you know, just like we experience this incredible thing called love. We have more songs, more movies that are written about love. We actually, as Christians, love to hear about God's unconditional love. Yet with love, there is always heartbreak. So where do you take a, a broken heart for healing in this world? Because heartbreak is everywhere in this world. So where do you take it? I'm not talking about a bump in the road, but this is real heartbreak. Not something that only takes a weekend to get over, but real heartbreak that lingers. The brokenheartedness that we are feeling, we go to Jesus because real brokenheartedness is paramount. It's not about some person we had a crush on in sixth grade or in high school. I mean, this is brokenheartedness that deals with fear, with grief, with pain, with guilt that we experience because of sin. Where do we go when our hearts break because of sin? When we disappoint ourselves with guilt, when we disappoint ourselves with the world bringing on fear, well, we do something. We can't believe we did that. I can't believe that is now attached to my history and my identity. I mean, how does a person receive comfort relating to sin, shame, guilt of our past? Listen, within the gospel, it contains the healing, the comfort. The promise of God to us because of the gospel is that we become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things pass away, all things become new. We know it immediately that change has happened in our life when we became a Christian. When we were born again, you are not the same person. It's not mind over matter. It's not positive thinking. It's the reality that the Holy Spirit has come into our lives, and thus the power of God has changed us. It also says in verse 1, this proclamation of liberty to the captives, it actually opens the prison to those who are bound. Not only does Jesus provide the forgiveness of sins, which would be enough if that's all he did, but that's not all that he does. Yes, he gives us forgiveness of sins, but he provides us freedom from sin. When we commit sin, we're always a slave to that sin because all sin has a hook. It doesn't matter if culture declares that sin is really not sin. It's really not an enslaving act a person is engaged in. But what the world does is rename sin to tame it or to downplay it and remove any negative stigma related to that sin. They reverse the slave aspect of that sin and declare it's actually an act of freedom. But think about all the different kinds of rehab centers here in the United States. We have so many drug and alcohol rehab centers that people are trying to get their loved ones into, and there's a problem. They can't get them in. They're packed. They're jammed. If you have a lot of money, there are rehab centers that cost up to thirty dollars to $50,000 for a month or six weeks. Those are springing up. We have rehab centers, detox centers for sin. And then people say, and sin is not slavery. Now, I'm not saying that those things don't help, which they do. But what I'm pointing out is look at the number of those who are in slavery to sin. We have prisons full of people who are there because of their slavery to sin. We have overcrowding in prison and rehab centers and detox centers because people were saying, it's okay, be free, be who you are. It's liberating. Yet these people are long gone who said it's liberating and freedom. But now where does a person turn? They turn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what we need to understand about sin. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. That's how people think sin is bad because God has forbidden it in the world. But no, sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden 
because it's bad. Yet, people have that casual attitude towards sin until there are casualties, until there's a victim of murder or violence or abuse or rape in massive numbers. Here's what Jesus promised in the gospel. He liberates the captives. He opens the prison to those who are bound. Listen, the sin of fear is not bad because it's forbidden. Fear is forbidden because it's actually bad. The sin of fear is bondage. The gospel opens prison doors to those who are bound. You know, we deal with what's happening in our world right now. We want to follow protocol. We want to be wise. We want to wash our hands. But you and I are not called to walk in fear. Jesus said this in John 8. He said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We've never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will be set free? And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. And if the son sets you free, you are truly free. Hey, that is great news. But the question is, how does Jesus make a person free from sin? Peter said it very well in 2 Peter 1. He said, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, of, of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through that knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. When we put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, writing us with the will to do and actually the power to do God's good pleasure. That is a life he offers that is free from the bondage of sin. Fear doesn't stop things from happening. It stops life that was happening. And it also says in the second verse to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, that this is the day of salvation. This is the time of salvation. What it declares, that every person in the world can be saved right now. When Jesus made this proclamation 2,000 years ago in Isaiah 61 to that synagogue in Nazareth, he's saying there's no classes to take. There's no Mount Everest to climb. You don't have to punish yourself with whips or chains to prove yourself. You can be a convicted criminal hanging on a cross only hours away from death. For the promise stands. He will save you. But listen, the opportunity will not always be available. For when death comes, it marks the end of opportunity to be saved. Death seals our eternal destiny. It cannot be changed after I die. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And since no one knows the day of their death, the Bible teaches that today is the day of salvation. This is proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord. The time of the Lord's favor has come. Now what's interesting? Jesus stopped in his quote of Isaiah. There in Nazareth, he stops halfway through verse 2, and he closes the scroll. Here's what it says there in Luke chapter 4. It says, when he came, as Jesus, to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released and that the blind will see that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor 
has come, the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he rolled up the scroll. He handed it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. But the question is, why did Jesus stop in mid-thought in verse 2? Because the last half of verse 2 and verse 3 doesn't come until 2,000 years later, just prior to his second coming, when the day of God's vengeance for his chosen people, his wrath will be poured out in that tribulation to a Christ-forsaken world, but also at a time to redeem his own. He'll bring comfort to the people who mourn, who mourn in Zion, the, go the gospel for the nation of Israel, and where God will give them beauty for ashes, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Listen, in our day and for over 2,000 years, the scripture is being fulfilled. Those folks, it was a draw, a jaw-dropping sermon. Because the verse 22, the very next verse says, they marveled at his gracious words. But then somebody piped up and said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Haven't we seen this kid grow up here and educated here and saw him working with his dad? He's now proclaimed to be Messiah with this great news. Now they wanted to throw him off of a hill in Nazareth and kill him. See, this truth and proclamation fulfilled in their hearing was nothing more than a scam to the people of Nazareth. No way local boy is Messiah. And you see in the reality, my familiarity of Jesus is I grew up going to church nominally. You know, I heard of Jesus all my life, but I rejected him as my Lord and as my Savior. Not just the people of Nazareth was, just like the people of Nazareth did. And what they were familiar with was a total rejection of who he really is. And what I was familiar with was a rejection of who he really is. A person who is surrounded around the beauty of the gospel, the good news, the great news, has to be careful that they don't lose that appreciation for it. A person who lives at the foot of the Himalayas has to remind themselves of the beauty or they will lose the breathtaking awe of that because familiarity does breed contempt. Listen, may we have a new look at the gospel. Today, a fresh look into the good news that we have, that we can share this with others, that they need at this time in this world to hear some great news with all the bad news. Not just to be saved, but empowered to be transformed. Not just forgiven, but freedom. 